0: Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we dive back into the cryptocurrency conversation with one of our favorite fintech experts, Chuck Senator, to discuss the current state of cryptocurrency in the financial markets and how certain timeless principles could be helpful for the future of this asset class. In our headline section, we review a recent rule proposal from the SEC regarding the use of predictive data analytic technologies, or PDA technologies. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind. We're following up on Chuck's interview on cryptocurrencies. We review the recent decision in the Ripple case and its future impact on the investment management industry. Diving into the headlines portion of the show... On July 26th, the SEC proposed a rulemaking that re- would require broker-dealers and investment advisors to eliminate conflicts of interest associated with the use of predictive data analytic, PDA, technologies. Under the proposed Exchange Act rule and Advisors Act rules, the SEC would require BDs and RIAs, respectively to, one, eliminate or neutralize the effect of conflicts of interest arising from the use of PDA technologies by identifying potential conflicts of interest that could arise from investor interactions with a covered technology, and two, to adopt and implement written procedures to achieve compliance with the proposed conflicts of interest requirements, in addition to reviewing the written procedures no less than annually to assess their effectiveness. The proposal would also amend Exchange Act Rule 1783 and 1784, affecting BDs, and Advisors Act Rule 2042, the Books and Records Rule. The SEC stated that the proposal is, quote, sufficiently broad and principles-based, end quote, to allow for continued technology innovation and provide market participants with the flexibility to develop approaches consistent with their respective business models. In addition, the SEC stated that the proposal is technology neutral, meaning that it is not meant to identify technologies that should or should not be used by market participants. As far as statements from the various commissioners, to no one's surprise, SEC Chair Gensler, in full support of the rule proposal, said that firms are already required to act in their investors' best interest, but that this proposal would ensure firms' interests are not placed ahead of their investors by requiring conflicts of interest to be addressed that can arise from interactions with PDA technologies. Commissioner Lizaraga referred to the SEC's extensive analysis on whether current Current rules ensure protection for retail investors against emerging technologies, and he further emphasized the importance of revising conflicts of interest related requirements. He warned that the, quote, cumulative impact of unaddressed conflicts of interest falls on investors, end quote, and that technology has the potential to benefit firms at the expense of investors' interest. This concept was further supported by Commissioner Crenshaw, who also said that, quote, increased accessibility comes great responsibility. And she further cautioned that the conflicts of interest in favor of firms while yielding while yielding potential benefits can again cause investors to use more services and increase interactions or make risky investments. On the flip side, Commissioners Ueda and Peirce offered fairly scathing rebukes of the rule proposal. Commissioner Ueda saying he expressed concern that the proposal could hinder technology innovation due to its, quote, regulatory vagueness and considerable compliance challenges, and further added that the proposal seemed wholly unnecessary, following the SEC's recent measures to strengthen its regulatory framework to address certain conflicts of interest. Finally, Commissioner Peirce criticized the proposal for its hostile rather than its purported neutral stance toward technology and for, quote, the degradation of a principles-based regulatory regime, end quote, by replacing it with overly prescriptive rules. She further said that the SEC was rejecting disclosure as one of its primary regulatory tools by requiring firms to eliminate the use of a cover technology if it involves a potential conflict of interest rather than providing a disclosure. Further, Ms. per stated that the proposal risks depriving investors of many of the benefits of these types of PDA technologies and of technological advancement. Even the SEC admits in a release that a consequence of the rulemaking could be a firm opting not to use an automated investment advice technology because of the costs associated with complying with the proposed rules. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome back one of our favorite guests here at the Compliance and Context podcast, a person who, through their insights in the FinTech and RegTech space, continues to provide our listeners with just excellent, excellent feedback and content. And today we're going to be talking about a subject matter that he's talked about before, uh, but that continues to permeate what seems to be every single news cycle uh, in the investment management space and in the financial markets. And that's the topic of cryptocurrency. And our guest today is Mr. Chuck Senator. Chuck, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us again here on the Compliance and Context podcast. Welcome back to the show. And and maybe just uh, for some of our new listeners uh, who may not um, have heard some of our prior interviews together. Maybe just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience in the the fintech and regtech right space.
1: Great, Patrick, thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure uh, to be here. Um, these uh, these discussions are always very, very timely and interesting. So my background really involves or is somewhat multifaceted. I've, I've worn many hats between having been um, a securities regulator um, a, an assistant U.S. attorney, and I've uh, had the privilege of uh, leading uh, two major compliance programs between Merrill Lynch and Fidelity. The fintech and regtech pieces really were kind of natural extensions from all of this, because as uh, as time went has gone on, and as there have been all these wonderful developments in terms of uh, new use cases and sort of creating. Uh, technology as being a an element of actually creating new possibilities. The work that I've done and some of the things I've done really seem to have uh, been a focus of these developments happening because I consider them to be, in many respects, um, wonderful opportunities uh, for um, for the markets for those that are participants in the markets to actually find themselves in a better place.
0: Yeah. That's again very helpful, and appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I think because of your uh, the depth and breadth of your experience, and and I think also too, if I can give you a quick shout out, I think also your curiosity, right, and the idea that you know, despite having a very distinguished career, both as a regulator and then as a, a, a compliance officer, you know, as you look out on the horizon. When you think about these things that are happening in our industry, and that um, as the industry evolves, how it's going to be impacted, certainly the fintech and regtech spaces are are two very influential, I think, uh, uh, parts of the investment management industry moving forward. And, And maybe that's a good segue to dive into the conversation today on cryptocurrency. And, and really thinking about in order to talk about, and I guess my first question for you is really going to be how would you describe the current state of cryptocurrency in our financial markets. But but I'm guessing that some of that, and and you know, this isn't a topic that we've really dug into a lot uh over the past call it six or seven months. So it's it may be worth revisiting a little bit of recent history here. But you know, how how would you describe the current state of the cryptocurrency? Um, how would you describe the current state of cryptocurrency in our financial markets? Uh today as it relates to both the industry and on the regulator side?
1: Well, I think a way to attack this, Patrick, is to kind of go back to the beginning. Um, I think in one of the earlier podcasts, we had talked a little bit about the origins of Bitcoin. um, And we talked about how, um, you know, this whole phenomenon seemed to um, grow up around around the notion of trying to Reduce costs, trying to have degrees of privacy, trying to actually have uh, a an asset that kind of wasn't necessarily tied to states or countries. Um, we can debate about whether that has value or not. But some of the knock-on possibilities that were presented by this actually were worth development. One in particular is the concept of the blockchain, where um, where you could have transactions that would be completed and done and immutably kept um, over time in a way that uh, actually could remove intermediaries, uh, remove extra costs, create the ability for transactions to occur at fractions of the cost Mm -hmm. as to what they would be under normal circumstances. I mean, one great example of this is uh, you can imagine for a moment um, someone wanting to send money home to another country, they went to Western Union. God knows how much they're paying for uh, for the ability to do that. Or you have certain other use cases that are based on sort of cryptocurrency models, where someone could do a FX transaction for a millionth of a dollar, which is basically right. free. Right. And so you know, so the thing is, this that's an example of what some of the that's an example of what some of the benefits this use case could be. And frankly, as I think we're probably going to talk about a little bit more when we get on with this, there's been a lot of bumpiness, growing pains, some actors that were less than responsible, which are sort of part of where we are now in terms of what would it mean in terms of how we can sort of get to a place where the responsible parties are able to sort of step in and be in a position to where... uh, these lessons that are being learned painfully can actually be a foundation of future growth
0: yeah yeah i think that's I appreciate you taking the time to go back and review some of that with with us and and i would say and we've certainly analogized it in a similar way i think in the past too but i think we've talked about this idea that in order for cryptocurrency and some of its, you know, related. Uh, uh um, types of assets, right? Digital assets, blockchain, other stuff. For that to gain legitimacy, there's going to have to be a certain level of constriction in some areas. There's going to have to be a certain level of of growing up <laughs> that, that has to happen for the industry as a as a whole in order to gain the kind of credibility in in the marketplace. And I know you talked about, you know, that there are pundits on both sides of the cryptocurrency equation who you know there's obviously avid supporters and there are big time skeptics right and and I think there are some in the industry you know who basically say essentially something like the following like who who needs these coins right and and I guess my question for you is you know do, do you think There's some merit to that questioning, or is that just kind of you know someone who's maybe a bit salty and maybe also wants to bury their head in the sand to avoid this uh, kind of evolution or to avoid this part of the in the future of the investment management industry.
1: Well, look in, in terms of the do we need these coins question, I guess I come at it this way. It's actually not a bad question. We've, uh, you know, we've certainly existed for years in terms of fiat currency. I guess at some point, you know, you were using like either gold coins or uh, all sorts of trinkets that were things of value. And that kind of ended up changing over time to where uh, even here in the United States, we didn't really have dollar bills uh, that were issued by the federal government until the Civil War. So you can sort of see how there's been a lot of transactional change down the road. So I guess the question about whether we need the coins, I'm gonna, but I guess my answer would be maybe a little bit facile. But at the end of the day, I think that to make a decision about whether these things are needed would really be unfair to the innovation process. And if When we think about a lot of other things, I mean, Let's let's say look there, there are there are there are there are government-based like payment protocols Fedwire. There's a bunch of things that are involved with that, but there are other payment use cases that have evolved, and and the marketplace is deciding whether they have value. I mean PayPal. I mean there's a there are a bunch of is an example of uh, sort of like a non a, a non-government-based payment system, and there are tons of others. And the good part about this is that these new offerings, these other offerings are actually promoting better outcomes. and then we sort of, I think we should sort of let things play out and and let's how, see how things work out in terms of whether something is something is desirable, something is making sense or not. because at the end of the day, like Darwinish evolution, I think the markets may end up deciding for themselves what ends up working and what ends up not working. So I think it's a little premature to, in my view, to basically start banning things before they've had a chance to responsibly play out.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I, I don't know that I had ever fully appreciated that part of that perspective. You, you did also mention something in there though that I think is worth digging into, which is that there, there probably are, well, and you know what? Your answer there also it reminds me of something that I know you and I talked about kind of in advance of our show today. But, but that you know a, a a post that you had on LinkedIn about eight months ago, and and part of kind of your overall commentary and thoughts about you know some of the things that had been happening in the crypto space at that time, right? Where there was a lot of turbulence, I think, around different things happening in in the digital currency space, and. You talked about this concept of timeless fundamentals. I guess I'd love to hear of your thoughts about what some of these timeless fundamentals are and how you see them or, or if you, you uh, eventually see them also playing out in the digital currency space, similar to kind of how you were just describing where, you know, we, we need to give them time. There's going to be some back and forth, but ultimately these timeless principles will help legitimize or add credibility to the crypto space as part of a, the, the, as part of the broader market.
1: All right. So when I think about timeless principles, it really is a function of how a player in the marketplace, regardless of whatever the laws might be, there's an element of, there's an element of business ethics. There's an element of what, I again, well, some of these timeless principles are actually highly grounded in things I think that are an element of common sense in the human experience. So let me see if I can um, sort of dig down a little bit on that. I think in thinking about time as principles, it'd be interesting to have a thought experiment. The thought experiment would be this. Let's say for a moment that we live in the state of nature. There's no police. There's no SEC. There's no Justice Department. And it's basically a situation where there are no rules. Now, if you're in that environment and you were starting a business, are trying to go try to say something that of commercial value, think for a moment, what kinds of things, if you're a customer, what kinds of things would you expect from this firm to give you the confidence to do business with it? Sure. Sure. And so let's sort of think about what those would be. One would be that to the extent I'm working with your assets, that they're safe. To the extent that um, I want to sort of convince you to buy something, that I'm being transparent and suitable, that I'm thinking about trying to get you to invest in something, that we don't have information asymmetry to where I am at a disadvantage as a client. And we can go on and on and sort of think through these concepts, but they're really kind of obvious. And the thing about it, Patrick, I think as we sort of think about this, it's probably not an accident that these points in my thought experiment also happen to foot wonderfully to the regulatory scheme and what our laws expect out of us. Sure. So and so and so when we think about concepts of where are we going with a particular use case, or we think about, well, I have some I'm not sure if I'm 100% certain about what the laws are telling me to do, to me, and this may be a little bit facile and I don't mean to be such, but if someone had a level of uncertainty but thought about, obviously existing laws, but B, thought about these principles in terms of how they govern themselves, at the end of the day, the likelihood of you as a company blowing up are remote. You may have venial sins, as we used to say in Catholic school,
0: need
1: to be fixed, but the the odds of them blowing up are, I was presumed to be not zero, but remote. Because at the end of the day, to the extent that any market participant thought about what was best for the customer, and this is basic, basic stuff, and behaved in such a way, and did so honorably and ethically, if you were to to embrace those things, you'd see that these outcomes would tend to be good. And when we think about that kind of common sense set of principles, and we compare them to where people maybe didn't fully, fully consider the risks of stablecoins that are algorithmic, or the fact that FTX pulled together multiple different kinds of otherwise separate concepts in law to create these conflicts of interest. At the end of the day, not to not to minimize it, but it's not rocket science to figure this out and to do it right.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. No. I I think it's a great point. I think ultimately, I mean, how you describe some of those timeless principles there. I mean, I'm sure there are many of our listeners, including some of the regulators who may be listening to this podcast, who may think, yeah, that's. Ex- I mean, that, that that's right. That like a lot of those things of we want there to be certain safeguards when it comes to protecting people's assets. We want there to be transparency in the marketplace with what you're disclosing to the ultimate investors and then ultimately how you execute on that and making sure that you're following through with the disclosures that you've provided and there is this overarching theme of if if you abide by those general principles right if you abide by those general cor- uh you know again that's why folks have a code that's why advisors and you know, we have codes of ethics right that that help us Help shape and define how that company as a collective is going to act down to the individual level to help guide their behaviors. And, you know, this idea, I guess, maybe as a segue then to think about, okay, well, we understand the foundational elements that we would like to see in this space that are part of some of those timeless principles that many of our other financial institutions already have, right? That there's a lot of those things are already in place. Maybe those things aren't as developed yet in the crypto space. And I guess that leads to my next question that, that does come from the regulator's perspective, which is, you know, what what is it that you think scares the SEC and other regulators so much about this space?
1: I guess I would answer it this way: recent experience has not exactly promoted confidence.
0: <laughs> fair, probably very fair. Yeah, sure.
1: And, and, and so you see how um, again, again, you can sort of think of this in terms of an evolution. But the um, the skepticism is well earned in terms of uh, in terms of many things that have happened. I do think that uh, some of the yeah, some some of uh, the use cases that are out there kind of ended up sort of pushing the margin. So if you go back years ago to the SEC's DAO case, the DAO, um, that was, um, I guess, maybe a pushing of the envelope as to whether certain times of ICOs, those uh, early, uh, as early assets were securities. And I think the SEC back then was actually quite restrained in terms of making that a uh, a report of investigation, as opposed to having it be an absolute sort of foundation for a case. I think think some of the issues and some of the bumpiness here is there is a degree of, I guess, in this evolution, a degree of uncertainty that's actually arguably maybe unfair to those that are creating new use cases that are trying to sort of do so responsibly. I mean, one of the things that um, came out in terms of the Coinbase case as well as some uh, some associated sort of reporting like by the journal and others was even within um, the various regulators, the two major regulators, I guess, when you think of this space, you think of the CFTC and you think of the SEC. So one of the things that I found interesting was in one of the reports that I read was, you know, after the Coinbase case was um, announced. There was something where there was some question about what the status of Ethereum was. And I guess there's a little bit of a bit in an ass because the way I understand it in the reporting, the SEC would see Ethereum as a security, and the CFTC would see it as a commodity. <laughs> so imagine uh, imagine you know how paralyzed anybody that wants to act in this space might feel in terms of how does this sort out, which again sort of begs another question as to whether there's something we can do better to kind of create at least some reasonable certainty to enable the responsible use cases to move forward and not be kind of wondering which pew they belong in.
0: Sure, sure. And, it will, and certainly, look, if you've got two different regulators providing you with contradicting views about a particular type of asset and i guess you know that that also begs the question about there's the evolution of the cryptocurrency marketplace and then I guess there's also kind of like the evolution of the regulatory landscape that attaches to that marketplace right and how it gets viewed and how the SEC's views have evolved over time versus the CFTC's views have evolved over time it's also not lost on me that of course chair Gensler now chair of the SEC I think originally started with the CFTC and maybe his own views have have evolved over over time, but you know how how do you see the role of the regulators in this space having evolved over time? And have you seen a continued focus from them from, from that side of the, of the house to really at least try to keep pace with the advance of the the cryptocurrency marketplace?
1: Well, I guess one of one of the things. I'm not so. I'm not trying to be too critical here because I understand that uh, you know, having been at the SEC myself, if you see something is going in the wrong direction, you're going to act. But I do think that you know there is something that's to the extent that we could figure out a way to find other means of providing feedback, other by what the people sort of what people call the reg- regulation by enforcement. That would be a useful thing in terms of being able to create some degree of progress in the space. Because one of the things that an enforcement case does, A, it'll send a, a signal, but it's by definition, backward looking.
0: Sure. Right.
1: And so and so you sort of find out down the road, looking backwards as to what was wrong, where you have, if for those that are interested in trying to support innovation, something more forward looking could, could be better now. One of the things that sort of strikes me, um, and I know it's this is, this is tough stuff because I understand and really can appreciate why my colleagues at the SEC want to be careful about this. But I I think many of us are aware that um, most of our regulators have created innovation offices. Virtually right. all of them have. And I think the idea there was to try to create a situation where people that had legitimate questions and wanted to move forward responsibly would be able to spend time and engage with their regulators to get a little bit of color and feedback. My sense is, is, that there might be an opportunity to kind of borrow, maybe not exactly, but borrow concepts in terms of engagement by regulators, as we see in other countries. A, a mm-hmm. leader of this has been, you know, the FSA in in the UK, you've seen other, other jurisdictions that are kind of more willing to see whether it's sandboxes or other ways to sort of work together with um, people that are trying to do innovation to kind of have that forward-looking experience to sort of help provide some guidance. Obviously, it would ultimately be a task for Congress, but you know, Congress isn't exactly wired sometimes to sort of act in the short run. And right. At the end of the day, I know there's a lot of a lot of activity and a lot of thinking about bills in Congress now, but to have the opportunity to have a conversation with staff of a regulator has to get some either guidance or to get some sense as to, um, you know, at least where there's a mutual education about where they're going, and maybe give them a sense as to what might or might not fly absent waiting for an enforcement action. My sense is that that could be extraordinarily valuable and at the same time responsible to where you don't have anybody that's sort of going down a reckless road with a use case, but yet still, you know, assuming you have a, a company or a new innovative idea that wants to sort of see the light of day, that this can be done in a way that provides some degree of guidance that will allow them to kind of move forward based upon the feedback they've gotten from the experts, which are our regulatory friends.
0: Yeah, it's such a great answer, Chuck. And there's there's a lot to unpack there that I think is really really important. And so I'd I'd, I'd really love to echo a couple of those thoughts in a couple of key areas. Number one, you, you're so spot on that you know i think that is one of the biggest challenges when it comes to again what what some might call regulation by enforcement right is that you know inherently you're looking backward in a case where there's uh, an enforcement action now it may be highlighting at times a principle or some other type of conduct, violent of conduct that, that uh, you know other registrants would want to certainly avoid in the future to avoid their own case, right? But at the same time, you, you're uh, inherently looking backward there. And look, I can speak from personal experience. I've worked with Finra's OFI office the office of financial innovation i've worked with the sec's finhub office before we've had a couple of representatives from those offices on this very podcast to talk about you know related subject matter in the past and you're you're really spot on there too because that that is such a valuable Tool that uh, other registrants that are in the space, many of whom I think are really trying to do the right thing, they can at least, it's a good thing that the regulators have set up those offices. They can provide hopefully some level of guidance and education for those active participants in those areas. But but I do think, you know, to your point about, well, you know, the responsibilities of the regulator and and how they can hopefully try to lean in and provide guidance on the front end, right, is such a, a something that would be incredibly valuable in this space. And you already articulated it a little bit earlier when you said, you know, you don't I understand that there's some hesitation there. You don't necessarily want to step in and, and and have a misstep, right? That you've got to then moonwalk back later. But obviously there's so much activity in the space, both from those active kind of the, the market participants to the investors that are also interested in it, that some of that additional guidance on the front end, some of the additional, hopefully rulemaking and other, you know, related, you know, proposals that might be happening on that side would be incredibly valuable it leads into you know I, I guess one of the things that I think is really challenging for the regulators to grapple with and maybe this is another another question that I'd love to pick your brain on is where you've got these institutions in the crypto space that, that certainly we see some of this in the broader financial markets but I think because the conflicts that are inherent, Where you have an institution that's playing—that's the institution itself—is wearing multiple hats, right? That it's performing different activities. There's conflicts certainly in that, but generally, it's it's a worn path at this point. You know, people understand what those conflicts are. Typically, registrants are doing a good job of being upfront about those conflicts and providing those to the investor populace. You know, do you see that same challenge? In the crypto space, where you know the regulators are having a hard time grappling with institutions that might be playing multiple different roles in the process, and um, and you know, do you see the same kinds of intrinsic conflicts happening there?
1: I guess the answer is a resounding yes. I mean, look, I mean, this sort of may border more on. Uh, I mean, I don't want to prejudge um, Sam Bank and Freed in terms of what his case is going to be. But certainly when you have kind of things that are being commingled and different types of types of elements of what you would expect in terms of, you know, lending protocols and commingling assets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's kind of like a uh, almost like a, a, an example of like what not to do. <laughs> right even even if it's well intentioned uh, and see that's the thing about conflicts of interest. Um, you don't necessarily have to be nefarious. I mean, you can have conflicts that emerge in a way that uh, does isn't necessarily as um as stark in terms of the application as of what happened let' say with an FTX. There's a reason that's that segregating, Certain sets of duties may be a bit of a prophylactic. I'm not suggesting that a firm couldn't operate with these various different realms in under one hat. But in terms of when you sort of think about going back to my earlier discussion about you know what happens if there's no rules, wouldn't anybody feel more comfortable if they had these various sort of elements? Of whether it's you know making sure that you have custody that's different than where you know, sales are being done, or it's I mean, if, if this was all separate, what it does is create a bit of comfort for anybody that would want to invest or be a part of this use case that you're creating. And at the end of the day, to the extent, it creates comfort and a sense of a sense of uh, trust you, by definition, will attract assets in business. And so I think that um, to the extent that going back to the wisdom of segregation, as as has kind of been, um, I don't know, the experience that we had in in recent times, particularly when you think about the FTX example, that uh, at the end of the day, it's probably the prudent thing to do, particularly... Uh, under circumstances where there's been a lot of concern, and particularly under such circumstances where there's going to be a bit of a microscope. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, those those principles would end up serving a use case well in terms of being able to attract attract assets and be respected in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I mean, if you think about even just on, you know, in the regulatory filings that many of our listeners are already performing on behalf of their firms right now, think about the number of questions that are asking about. Whether or not you perform broker dealer activities in addition to performing investment advisor activities, in addition to serving as a custodian or in any of the three and wherever any of the three meet, add into there where you might also be ex- serving as an exchange yourself and stuff like that. And I can say also anecdotally in some of the recent SEC exams where we're helping to support advisors through them that. The questions center around the role that the institution might be playing as it relates to crypto, and what they're really interested in is where you might be performing multiple services or wearing multiple hats as it relates to crypto assets, specifically to that point. I really think that's an area that, again, is very, very challenging and, and certainly is one that has the focus of the regulators from the stance of where, if you identify where those conflicts are, you're more likely to, one, uh, hopefully weed out right uh, bad actors that aren't living up to what they've said that they're going to do on behalf of their investors or the folks that are participating in that specific marketplace. And two, hopefully, again, better provide guidance to those participants who want to do the right thing, and who want to make sure that you know they're able to kind of execute on their own business plan or operations, but but do that and stay within the white lines. All of this discussion, which has been great, again, thank you, Chuck, leads me to start thinking about okay, well. Where do we go from here? (laughs) Like, you know, we've talked about kind of a little bit of where we are now. But in thinking about future solutions and, you know, what have you seen, you know, in the last several months, or have you seen anything? Maybe it's a better way to phrase that. Have you seen anything in the last several months that starts to make you feel like, in addition to the regulators, even some of the market participants are trying to identify new and innovative ways to kind of push the cryptocurrency space forward in a way that's going to be positive and in a way that's going to add credibility?
1: I guess I'm going to answer that this way, Patrick, and that is, I guess we're seeing some examples, I think we talked about a little bit about this, you know, when we chatted earlier in terms of the EDX release, you'll see that, you'll see kind of in their use case, a closer alignment to what we would see as more sort of traditional kind of places of... Segregation.
0: The- for, for some of our listeners who may not know about EDX, maybe can, could you talk a little bit about what EDX is and w- what it's trying to do?
1: Well, anyway, but, but most most simply what they're trying to do, they're trying to create a, a, basically an, an exchange that's going to basically have as its elements separate stakeholders as opposed to everything being glommed together along the lines of what we talked about with FTX. And the other thing is that they're going to be, there's going to be some segregation, for example, of custodial points as opposed to having that all be mixed together. And notably, um, many of the players that seem to be signing up for this are well-known, highly seasoned financial financial firms. And so, I think this is kind of an element. Not to get ahead of myself, but I think this is kind of an element of seeing progress in terms of the development of practices that would be more conducive to responsible actions in this space. And again, maybe what's been happening is that they're sort of the lessons of the past are beginning to kind of be internalized in terms of what the marketplace would seek to have, in terms of what the marketplace would hopefully expect from its constituents as these use cases begin to continue to evolve.
0: Yeah that that is an interesting you know kind of case study to to think about where where you know there are these things that you know obviously there are some firms that are trying to add legitimacy to the marketplace there are some firms that that are doing things in a way where they're going to continue to engage in the crypto space but without losing you know some of what we talked about earlier on the the timeless principles front right and they're going to be able to keep some of those so that again you can continue to provide transparency to investors you can uh, continue to protect Assets right against fraudulent activity and and kind of try to you know with, with the types of market participants that you're describing that are going to be part of EDX right you're also hopefully going to be able to embed some of those you know key institutional best practices and and I think that's going to be so critically important too so thank you for for sharing that. I guess it, as we think about kind of closing out our discussion today, you know, I, I would just ask for, you know, m- maybe some of your final thoughts. You don't necessarily have a crystal ball in front of you <laughs> right now to be able to tell us exactly where we're going. And, and, you know, w- we know because of what has happened over the last eight months that, you know, anything can happen, but I, I would be interested to, to, just hear your general thoughts on you know having given us a better sense of where we are now where do you see the cryptocurrency marketplace evolving in the future how do you see it evolving in the future and just any other kind of general thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners
1: yeah so i think that um the first thing is in terms of the conversations we've had about some of the lessons learned I'm reluctant to kind of have people think by definition that these were dishonest people. Um, there were some dishonest people, but again, I think there was also an essence of, of some people trying to figure it out. Now we have to remember that in the eyes of the public, (laughs) there are those that think that, uh, the whole notion of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency arose out of this like nefarious kind of set of situations right. where there was all sorts of uh, bad actors and stealing and uh, all sorts of stuff. But the thing that the the thing about it is that there's a lot of promise um, when you sort of think about uh, I think about again transaction costs being lowered. I mean, um, decentralized finance actually while it has its challenges, uh, has the real promise of being able to have transactions happen without middlemen under circumstances where you have a a ledger on the blockchain and under circumstances where you have actually smart contracts that are programmed to have automatic execution for certain types of transactions. These types of developments um, have the promise of being able to, again, not just bring cost down, but bring the opportunity for more inclusion when it comes to transactions and people that are currently unbanked, maybe at some point being able to participate there. So I think that the future is promising. I do think that at the end of the day, though, I'm going to go back to what we started out with in terms of our conversation. That is, you know, regardless of how various developments occur, I really believe Going back to the notion of timeless principles and business ethics, that regardless of whether it's cryptocurrency, whether it's gold, whether it's coins that went back to, you know, the Stone Age, the same points that would create a sense of confidence, create a sense of uh, security for those that want to trust that embrace the principles that form the underlying reasons that we have, the laws that we have, to the extent that those are honored, it is a and it's honored, you know, seriously, I think that there's great promise to where where this where the value can be added in this space. And it's really going to be up to the players all together to kind of think responsibly and to try to sort of be fair about how or what it could mean, you know, for countless people. And what it can mean for, um, again, sort of the next generation of commerce.
0: Sure. I I greatly appreciate that you said that, <laughs> despite what uh, my, my my team may jokingly uh, uh, tell tell others uh, here here at Calfi. You know, I I'm a glass half full kind of guy too. Uh, I'm an optimist too, and and I do think that look certainly we're not going to... When you look at what's happened just in the last 12 months, there are obviously some folks involved in the space who, whose maybe heart and mind weren't necessarily always in the right place. But I, I generally agree with you that I think it's good for people to recognize that a lot of the folks that are really active in this space, it's easy for us in hindsight to go back and view how they reacted in certain situations or to look at some of the things that they did in certain circumstances and say well that's violent of conduct look at look at what they did At the time, and in the absence of a clear regulatory framework or clear regulatory regime by which to kind of uh, instruct your behavior, you know, a a person might might actually be trying to do the right thing, or at least in in a reasonable way arrive at a decision that they believe is doing the right thing. That then, down the road, when we're able to view it with you know perfectly clear 2020 hindsight, we, we may look at differently right and in a more of a negative way whereas at the time sitting in their shoes we might have we might have thought well this is a reasonable conclusion to draw and that that behavior wasn't necessarily nefarious as you indicate and i think that's really important and then i guess the other thing that i'll just also echo that i appreciate you saying is I think we all have a vested interest in getting it right. (laughs) You know, I think from both the marketplace, for the investors, the people participating in the active market participants is what I mean by that, the investors, and then the regulators, right? I mean, I think there's all a vested interest in trying to get it right. And so, like you, I optimistically hope that we can uh, uh, put our heads together, so to speak, to try to arrive at some positive landing spot here where. We can still have those timeless principles present in the dynamics of of the uh, cryptocurrency space and and in the broader financial markets, but obviously not necessarily lose completely that side that I think inspired the crypto space to begin with, which is that innovation right, and that push to move forward into the next phase of, of the investment management space of the financial markets. So Chuck, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It really is. It's always a pleasure. And I know I speak on behalf of the listeners when I say thank you for just sharing your, your thoughts in, in this area and your wisdom and your experience. I, it's really valuable. And I know that I know that they appreciate it.
1: The pleasure is all mine, Patrick. And it's um, it's something that it's always a pleasure to be part of the compliance and context.
0: Well, as we frequently say in these parts, no good deed goes unpunished, Chuck. So while I'm done asking you questions about cryptocurrency and uh, the current state of affairs there, you know, it's the summertime, you know, lots of vacations being had, some travel. Maybe folks are on a plane or in the car and they've got some extra time on their hands. So maybe if I could, if I could uh, pick your brain one last time on today's show, it would be, you know, maybe what's, what's a, a really good uh, either book that you've read or television show that you've uh, been watching, or movie that you've watched recently, that might uh, you know, that what's 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 one thing that's really piqued your interest here uh, in in the recent past?
1: Well, this is going to be a bit old school, but I uh, just finished um, reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and there's some interesting wisdom from a uh, from the purpose of from the point of view of an emperor that sort of I found very very interesting in terms of. Uh, Things to think about in terms of life and things to think about in terms of um being a human being.
0: Yeah. That that's really interesting that you bring that up. That was actually I can't remember if it was a present after graduating from college or graduating from law school. But I know I had the that that my uncle uh gave me that as a present. And that man, that is really bringing back some inspiration. I'm going to have to go back and maybe reread that because I do remember very much enjoying going through that. And look, that's one of our you know, very frequently at the end of these shows, we have a uh, a segment called "History Has Your Back," that where we're often looking at either an a, an event that's occurred or a quote or something else from a historical figure or an historical event that that uh, can uh, teach us a lesson. That certainly, just in in general, but also maybe as it relates to our compliance program. So. Um, Chuck, thank you again very much. Uh, really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your summer months. Hope you get some time with family and friends and looking forward to having you back on the podcast here at some point down the road. It
1: would be my pleasure, Patrick.
0: The final part of today's show features another segment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney and will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue and highlight how it relates to the investment management industry and our securities compliance family. In today's What's On My Mind, we have a first ever here on the Securities Compliance Podcast where we will actually get to re-interview the wonderful Chuck Senator and bring back our special guest to add on to and build on what was a already fantastic interview covering cryptocurrency and DeFi in the current state of the investment management industry. But given the fact that the Ripple case came out, so close to the time that we uh, did our original interview, it only seemed proper that we bring back Chuck to do a follow-up encore and uh, provide us with some thoughts on the new Ripple decision. So Chuck, welcome back again (laughs) to the podcast. Always
1: a treat, Patrick. I'm delighted to be here with you.
0: (laughs) So on July 13th, earlier this year, we had the Ripple decision. And there have been lots of articles and uh, blogs and other editorial pieces written about the decision. But I thought maybe just for some of our listeners um, who may have seen the headlines but haven't quite dug in yet to the details, I'm imagining that a lot of people are probably relatively familiar with the Ripple case. But if you wouldn't mind, Chuck, maybe just if you could give us a little bit of background on Ripple... And a short summary of kind of what what happened uh, with the decision.
1: Yeah, sure. So in many respects, I think of where I'll start, Patrick, is that uh, I know there's been a lot of different points of view in terms of the Ripple case and what it means and whether it's a bombshell or not. I don't want to kind of bury the lead, but in the in the beginning, um, it's really kind of a an application of the Howey test, which I think sometimes people need to remember. It certainly is a security when you think about um, the 33 Act, but it has all sorts of like quirks and facts and circumstances. Let's say that other securities that are listed in the Act—a um, stock, a bond, a note—there's no definitional issues. You know what it is, and so here there needed to be a bit of a uh, a dive, if you will, into um, where there was an analysis that had to go through the facts and circumstances. So 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 net net. Uh, Ripple and XRP. It's a its a platform and uh, you can have tokens that you have an ability to purchase. And we had four different sets of uh, purchasers, actually four different sets of transactions that happened. One had to do with institutional investors. The case talks about how these institutional investors actually, I'm assuming based upon the way the case reads that the institutional investors were sort of Certainly provided lots of material. There's lots of promotional material. Um, really, a very rich kind of record in terms of them being kind of aware of um, what's going on and being basically subject to the uh, issues that would arise or what you would expect out of a promoter. So, what ended up happening in the in the institutional sales situation was that um, you know the, the for those of you that uh, remember the Howie test, it's basically a payment of money right so um, these investors certainly paid money common enterprise the court talked about how when you think about the fact that when they did these institutional sales they were pooling them the, they were being pooled by by the ripple groups and that uh, they actually kind of shared in the fortunes of you know of of, of the of whether of, of the common enterprise element because they all had sort of had skin in the game and they really kind of were together in what they called horizontal commonality. And then the next piece was you know, through the efforts of a promoter or the efforts of others to rely on that. And so what ended up happening here was the court, I believe, felt like they had enough evidence to show that because of the fact that there was so much promotion, and there was a level of promotion that sort of created this expectation that they would receive process, they can sort of link it to the other two parts of the test. And therefore, the judge ruled that those institutional sales were actually actionable as a securities violation. So, so there's that. So but if you go to the, the other transactions, basically, you had uh, a, a, what they called programmatic sales, and what that really was, was there were people that uh, not did not necessarily, or certainly there was no evidence that they got the same kind of promotional material. They were just investing in an in XRP. And so the real question there was whether, you know, if there was an expectation of profit, there was probably a lack of clarity as to what was driving that expectation of profit. Could they even say that the expectation of profit was really based upon the work, the sole work of a promoter? Versus another reason where they may simply be playing the market, you know, like you might be with, like if you were buying Bitcoin. So the thing is, is that so that where, that, where that fell apart was they really didn't have the evidence to kind of show that there was, that the three part test uh, was actually uh, satisfied. And similarly with the third, there was a third class in terms of other distributions where um, actually Ripple actually paid compensation and paid developers to actually do sort of ripple-based activities. And what happened there was that I think the court said, well, wait a minute, you need to have an investment of money. What happened here was that actually these guys are being paid. So that really kind of ended up creating a problem with the first part of the Howey test.
0: Sure.
1: So without getting into that, there's another discussion in terms of two of the promoters, and we can talk a little bit about that later. But what this really sort of boils down to, Patrick, is a classic application of a facts and circumstances test, and uh, and so uh, and I think that um, there might be some questions that others may have about whether that feels good. We can talk a little bit later. I mean, my own view is that it's likely that maybe uh, it isn't as if if because something wasn't found to be a securities violation means that there's no recourse at all. Because if you look to let's say for example CFTC officials. They would mm-hmm. say, we have jurisdiction over frauds and manipulations. And it could have been simply a problem or a question of it being in the wrong pew. But right. I'll stop there. I don't know if, we, if, if, if I've sort of uh, covered that. Yeah. There. No,
0: that's, that's super helpful. Obviously, though. I, I know that that there were multiple layers to the Ripple case in particular that were different than some of the other kind of crypto or other related types of litigation in the past that we've seen and and certainly that have come to the forefront over the past couple of years. And so I really appreciate your synopsis, some of that and kind of how it got broken down. I guess if you think about the specific facts and circumstances here in the Ripple case do you is there anything in the decision in particular and this is where kind of the to get to the 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 what's on my mind part of of this with that background one of the things that's been on my mind that i'm sure is probably on the mind of some of our listeners too is there anything in the decision in ripple that you think ultimately has a long lasting impact on in the crypto space or on other cases that may be adjudicated in the near term with regard to the SEC stance? Like, is there anything that we learned new that we didn't already know as a result of the decision in Ripple and and the impact on the crypto space?
1: Well, I'll I'll answer it this way. Something that we didn't know. I I think that maybe I'm going to really kind of this might be a little bit of a reach here, but I kind of think that maybe people presumed little bit much about the about the boundaries of the Howey test because again it is it is something that is kind of a, a very deep set facts and circumstances uh, situation in that um, and and really when you think about crypto and again I'm going to go back to things we kind of understand in other contexts so Howey itself involved oranges right and so. Yeah. And so the oranges were simply a commodity until they were part of a of of, of a. I'm not, not going to call it a scheme, but part of a promoter's efforts to sort of pull people together for orange groves. That right. because of the reliance on the on the promoter to create value for you know for the investors, turn that orange from a commodity mm-hmm. into security. And so I think what happened here is that uh, something similar took place when it came to looking at sort of the realities of the Howey test. Mm-hmm. So, again, um, it, w- it would be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, I think this is going to be appealed. But, um, you know, when I first read the, read the when I first saw the sub sort of like the um, issues that were kind of introductory remarks or the little blogs by folks, when you actually read the case, you can sort of see what was driving the, you know, the outcome in terms of the way it happened. And I do, and I, and I, and I do think that um, you know, when you're thinking about summary judgment, and we're thinking about the burdens or the failures, I guess, in terms of the test, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that the judge was, you know, certainly not too far over her skis. And we right. can talk a little bit later about whether people think this is a bad thing, or somehow left open the possibility for all sorts of craziness to happen in terms of people investing in crypto not having to be protected by the securities laws. But um, the thing is, is that Again, since it's an investment contract and not another security that's enumerated in the 33 Act, yeah, this is the test that has to be satisfied, right? And uh, and I don't think that it's one that it'll be interesting to see how the appeal happens. I'm not quite certain as to where it would come out because it seemed to me that it wasn't an outrageous set of analyses that the judge mm-hmm. had um encountered or did,
0: yeah. No, I, I. I think I agree with you essentially down the line there. The one thing that's interesting, and I think you've already articulated it really well, is that the facts were very specific here. And I think because of the reliance on that in the decision, I think you could have some courts down the road that might be more sympathetic right, to claims that public statements promoting a certain token are, would be sufficient to demonstrate an expectation of profit by those in the open market. and. And then, you know, essentially courts are going to have an ability to either accept or reject the ripple analysis, but they don't they can still continue like consider it as precedent and then just distinguish it basically because of the specific facts and circumstances that were discussed here.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at I me, mean, look, a couple of think about it when you think about the case, you know, think about the programmatic sellers, think about what the outcome may have been had there have been even some promotional material floating around. And that may have been enough to kind of create, well, you know, this is a promotional material. I see that the Ripple's doing something, and therefore I might be in a position to sort of be in a position where it can be seen as relying on on the efforts of others. But here, it's kind of like it, it seems to be, you know, there was no privilege that anybody knew about. They're simply people who were kind of, selling stuff programmatically through, you know, through digital means. And it, there wasn't any way to link it, but, yeah, but who knows? And in any given case, there could be another fact floating around where someone's talking about it or people are somehow, either whether it's through chat groups or whatever, that talk about this and then do the transaction. It could be a very different outcome. It's really a very fact-specific issue. And so when I think about that, and maybe one way of thinking about this, is this really, is this really going to be something that's a a game changer or is it one that really was so fact dependent that, you know, it's a set of different feds, a set of facts down the road, set of facts down the road ends up causing an outcome where uh, there was a finding that it's a security.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on there and um, really, really, really appreciate your uh, uh, thoughts on it. I guess before I let you go, any other uh, uh, things, and you know, since Ripple, since the Ripple decision has come out, and it sounds like you know y- your thoughts kind of echo m- my own in that because of the way that that the you know the facts and circumstances of this specific case were outlined and ultimately adjudicated, that you know you could have cases with a very different outcome and still be able to differentiate it properly any other kind of larger impacts or or do you think that that's essentially at least for now how we should kind of take the the final decision here as we as we tie a bow on the topic
1: well i think there are a couple of things i mean I've, i saw some criticism in the lore view that we're having the having the status of a security being a a function of the manner of sale i guess mm-hmm. this person t- t- saw that as a criticism i guess my response would be is yes <laughs> The the notion of the Howey test does exactly deal with the manner of sale, right? And 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 so I mean, so I'm less in the camp of feeling that you know all hell is breaking loose as opposed to simply having a particular set of facts. That yes, the manner of sale mattered here because that's what the Howey test said. So I wasn't really offended by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, look, I mean, there's been also some commentary, I guess, I'm trying to recall where I read this, but there was some commentary where uh, how is it if you think about the programmatic sellers and the and the institutional buyers? So here, the institutional buyers, sellers get the um, protection of the securities laws, but the poor kind of um, mom and pops that are in the programmatic area do not. Well, again, I guess really for me, I mean, the Howey test is the Howey test, number one. Number two, like I said earlier, I think that it isn't as if they're left in the lurch if there if there was a manipulation or a fraud. We have the CFTC, who, frankly, I think there's been some noise that they think that they should be having jurisdiction over these elements anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. So it isn't, mm-hmm. as
1: if, it, it isn't as if you know it's sitting out there naked. I do think that it's unfortunate there's so much facts and circumstances that leave. People under, not understanding, you know, what pew they ought to be in, that needs to be changed. Sure. But at the end of the day, I can't. If you're following precedent, you're following the test. I can't really argue too much with the decision.
0: Chuck, once again, can't thank you enough for coming back on this show and doing double the effort this time to talk about some, again, very challenging but really interesting and obviously kind of at the cutting edge of what we're dealing with in the uh, securities compliance space in the investment management industry. So, thank you again so so much. You are uh, uh absolutely your your presence here and your thoughts and insights are invaluable for our listeners. Thanks for coming on the show again and doing uh doing the first ever guest appearance on What's on My Mind installment here on the Securities Compliance Podcast and definitely w- would love to have you back on the show here at some point down the road.
1: Always great to be with you, Patrick, and
0: um, talk soon. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Chuck Senator, for coming on today's show to share his invaluable insights on the state of crypto and the recent Ripple decision. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more.